0: City Church, if you would please have a seat. Um, I uh, want to tell you that one of the great privileges that the church has, that this church has, is actually helping to identify uh, areas of gifting. Not uh, not in me, in you, in the church. Uh, God has given uh, gifts to each and every single one of us that we might be able to uh, help in his uh, mission to reveal his kingdom here on this earth, call people into that kingdom. So that's one of the reasons why we've spent quite a great deal of time over the last uh, few seasons just um, identifying people like Melody in the back who has uh, gifts and skills just to help us with our AV and Liz with communication and Andrew uh, leading our uh, musical worship. Uh, That's one of the reasons why uh, you might have been just asked to lead out in something at the women's retreat this last weekend is because we want to see you know what your gifts are, be fostered and have some space and have an environment to actually be able to work out in those giftings. And so uh, you will just see us do more and more of that. Now, one of the ways that we actually want to do that is uh, with people who feel called specifically into full-time ministry, into uh, the pastorate. We want to know that. We want to support you in that. And so uh, we have a few people who are going to seminary right now. Uh, who we want to support financially, who we want to be praying for. We want to give opportunities to see whether or not that calling that they feel like God has placed on their lives is affirmed inside of the church. So we just want you to know that. We want to be a place where your giftings can be fostered. And so uh, this morning, actually, Tyler Turner is going to be uh, leading us through what he has discovered in his word this morning. Uh, Tyler is not just a person, maybe you've only been around a short uh, time and you just know uh, that he's come in recently. That's actually not true. Our church uh, helped equip him for several years, sent him out to uh, Turkey and then to Jordan to minister to Syrian refugees. Uh, He went through a years-long process. I traveled with him to Sri Lanka and to the UAE and to uh, Pakistan. We went to help uh, just cultivate uh, some of those things in his life. Now he's back. He's actually attending And so he is being equipped to uh, become a preacher of God's word. So what we wanted to do was actually give him an opportunity to do that. But here's where the tricky part is. There can be a sense in which whenever we are trying to affirm these giftings, your giftings, our giftings, uh, that we focus too much on the person. Here's the truth. What Tyler is going to do this morning is lead us through the word. He's spent the last several weeks, and uh, the pastors have uh, helped study this uh, passage with him, and we have talked a lot about it. And so he is coming up simply to deliver the word. And this is the word of the Lord this morning in Acts chapter 27, starting in verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Kata. We managed with difficulty to uh, secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on Citrus, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther they took a second uh, the sounding again, and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were encouraged and ate some food themselves. Why don't you pray with me?
1: Our Father in heaven, Father, we see in this story, we see how your gospel is going forth And we see your workings in your servant, Paul, and how you choose to glorify yourself. Father, we know that your glory is your utmost concern, and you have deemed it worthy to save us who are called by your name into your marvelous light for the glory of Christ in this world. Father, I pray that as we listen to the proclamation of your word, as we look at your scriptures, at your revealed word, how you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, Father, that you would be glorified and you would be held as holy among your people in your church. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray, amen. Um, I will start very quickly by just saying I'm a high school teacher. Um, and so there's lots of noise going on and, and children. I have four children just had our fourth um, a week ago. Yeah. Thank you. We're still working on the sleep thing. Um, and so, but I teach in a high school room. Um, and so anytime that a teenager is on their phone while I'm lecturing or talking to their friend or something, it is innate within me to just give that person a stare. <laughs> and so if I just automatically default to that, I'm not, there's no judgment at all, okay? <laughs> I promise. It's just, it's, it's, it's really difficult for me not to do that, but it's okay. Kids will make noise, and we love kids. It's great. So um, I want to start again by just talking about church history for a second. Learning from church history um, can be invaluable, in seeing God's work through the church over time and for learning how the saints in the past have dealt with various issues that have arisen. Um, We will begin today by looking at one story about a well-known figure in the church's history. And I hope it will um, help to illumine the subject of our passage today. In 1736, an Anglican priest named John Wesley was aboard a ship headed to the American colonies. His purpose? to convert the Native Americans. While aboard this ship for some time, a storm approached with powerful winds, tossing the ship and sending waves crashing onto the deck. As one of these particularly large waves crashed onto the deck and poured down into the quarters of the ship, John recorded that the people aboard felt as if the ship was already halfway under the water. Naturally, as you would expect, they shrieked and cried fearing that their lives were over and John himself feeling the terror of this moment. However, there was another group of people on the, aboard the ship and they dramatically caught Wesley's attention and they were called the Moravians, a group of Protestants that traced their roots back to John Hus, a reformer in Bohemia, which is now the Czech Republic, who was burned at the stake for his Protestant teachings a hundred years before Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door at the church in Wittenberg. Now, why did these Moravians catch John Wesley's attention? Because while the English, most of the passengers aboard were English, while the English aboard the ship were terrified, the Moravians had been singing psalms. When this violent wave crashed aboard, instead of running or screaming... What was their reaction? They continued to sing. In questioning, about them, questioning them about this incident later, John asked them, were you not afraid? He replied, I thank God, no. So John questioned further, what about your women and your children? He said, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. This event stuck in Wesley's mind for years to come. These people had something that he did not, and he knew it. What was the difference? What was it, what is it that distinguishes Christians in these times of great suffering? We will endeavor to answer these questions by looking at the 27th chapter of Acts today. But first, let us quickly review um, the story Luke has told to this point in the book of Acts. Whatever we read in Luke's account of the spread of the church, we must view it through the statement by Christ in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Why? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So think about what we've talked about in Acts so far, right? We've seen primary themes of the preaching of the word of God, his people being witnesses in the power of the Holy Spirit throughout the book. Luke has been following this trajectory the whole time. You think about Jerusalem and Pentecost in Acts 2, starting the force. Judea and Samaria. Think about um, Philip going to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and the Holy Spirit falling upon them, proving that they are just as much as part of the church as those who were Jerusalem Jews. And now, following Paul to the end of the earth, beginning with the Gentiles, with the conversion of, of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And then um, now geographically through Paul's journey to Rome. Now, Luke is spilling much ink on Paul's ministry. Think about it, it's It's around half of the book of Acts, okay? And so we need to think about why is it that he's spending so much time on Paul. First, he is tracing the work of God as the gospel goes to the end of the earth. As Paul does more in this area of ministry than any other apostle of which we have record, Luke is also an eyewitness to much of what takes place in Paul's ministry. As we'll see in a moment, um, he starts using the pronoun we in as early as Acts chapter 16. And so that's over a decade prior to what we're going to look at now. Okay. Second, Luke has seen how much influence Paul is having on the growing Christian movement. Preaching, church planting, teaching, writing letters to many of the churches, which even then were treated as authoritative and, of course, would eventually make it into the New Testament canon of Scripture. Luke has also seen that some did not like Paul's leadership and attempted to undermine his authority. We see this in places like uh, Galatians chapter one and two, where he's forced to defend his ministry to the Galatians. Um, The entirety really of of the second letter to the Corinthians that we have. And some would even see in um, the letter to the Romans, this great exposition of the gospel that we have, that he in chapter 15 of that letter, he says, "I I want to be sent by you as I go and take the gospel to Spain. And so even at least part, part of the purpose of the letter of the Romans was to gain the trust and support of the Roman church, whom he had never met before this time. And so he's trying to just validate his ministry, which puts him in an awkward position. And so Luke, um, knowing that Peter and John and all of the other apostles have the benefit of have being in the best seminary this world has ever known— under the direct teaching of the Son of God himself, they have the gospels, right? Um, the gospel of Mark was written fairly early, and so Paul probably even knew that that was an existence validated by Peter, but that the other apostles, as, as uh, Paul says in Galatians, were seen as pillars in the church. But what about Paul? Now, We will be focusing upon God's work through Paul to bring the gospel to Rome, especially as it relates to the suffering in this story. But everything we will talk about also supports and validates Luke's testimony of Paul being a true Christian and apostle. We will draw out three points where we can see God being glorified through Paul in this story, but we must think of them less as three legs in a stool and more as steps in a ladder taking us to a higher understanding of God's glory in the suffering of his saints. So, as we begin to look at this story, we're just going to start breaking it down into three big sections, but I will say, again, these three points you will see throughout the entire story. So the first thing we see is that God glorifies himself through the wisdom of Christ in Paul. So, verse 1, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, again, just referring back to this is an eyewitness account from Luke. Okay, so Luke is, this is a very detailed account. In fact, um, historians have been able to look at this detailed account of how um, people at this time would approach a a storm like this and and their shipping techniques. Um, And so this is a very detailed account, Luke being a historian, and a, and a doctor himself. They delivered Paul and some of other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of adrametium which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So here, here's what's going on. So Paul has been kept in prison in Caesarea on the western coast of Palestine. And so they're going to make their way to Italy, which Americans are historically pretty bad at geography, especially in this area of the world. Um, But to give you an idea, we're going west and, yeah, I'm going to use my hands even if that doesn't make sense, but we're going west and eventually northwest, okay? Now, the problem with this is that the winds in this area of the world, basically spring through fall, are pushing from the west, and so they're pushing against the ship. And so then you have statements like in, chapter, uh, in verse 4, that we were forced to sail under the lee of Cyprus. So if you're not sure with these nautical terms, basically they're using the island of Cyprus as a guard against these winds, okay? Um, so now they're pushing west, they're sailing as much as they can under these islands, but it's taking them a long time because they're going against the wind. So now this, this, uh, this ship that's um, basically from the northwest corner of Turkey, is going to be going up to the southern coast of what is now Turkey, following along the coast and going back up north. And so this is why we have Paul traveling on this ship up to the southern coast of Turkey, but then eventually, in verse 6, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria, sailing for Italy and put us on board, so they've got to make a change To this, And so we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with great difficulty off Canidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete, off Salomon. Coasting along it with great difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. All right. And so now we're going to spend most of our time in this portion looking at, and again, I want to remind you, God glorifies himself through the wisdom of Christ in Paul. How do we see that playing out? Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, that would be uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, generally uh, mid-September to mid-October. And so we're pushing into late fall and even the dangerous winter in this area of the world would have been considered impossible to navigate by ship past uh, mid-November. Uh, mid, uh, no- no- rather. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now, how do we see the wisdom of Christ and Paul here? Now, first we need to think about the nature of true biblical wisdom. All right, what, what is the nature of true biblical wisdom? When, when we think of the word wisdom, sometimes we think of Confucius, right? We think of uh, statements like the, the best door is the one that is unlocked or the best floor is the one that doesn't fall in, you know, or something like that. Some of these kind of like nonsensical statements considered as so other, from an, another realm of some kind. But biblical wisdom is really a knowledge and a skill. Biblical wisdom, think about Um, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, why is that? What is it about the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom? And then how does that impact how we see Paul represented here? So it's knowing how God designed the world to work. Now, what does that mean? Think about Solomon, right? The great wise king. What does he say? Well, he says a lot. But something like, look to the ant, O sluggard, and consider her ways. Look to the ant. We're we're looking and seeing God's creation and gaining wisdom, God's knowledge of how this world works. If the ant, so small, is able to carry such a load, what are you doing being so lazy? Think of Jesus. Look at the birds. The birds of the air that they don't plan ahead, or they don't, they don't gather, and they, they don't do anything, but God still takes care of them. Don't be anxious, for what can you do by worrying and anxiety? You can't add a single hour to your life. This is biblical wisdom. Think about the great statements of Christ. Those who exalt themselves will what? Be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. Is that worldly wisdom or is that biblical wisdom? Biblical wisdom. That is the wisdom of God. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. Whoever will lose his life for my sake Will save it. That is anti-world. That is biblical wisdom. Now, how does that impact the way that Paul is approaching this? Notice that when he says, Not only I perceive that this voyage will be an injury and much loss, these, you know, we have the owner of the ship is mentioned in this passage. We have the sailors, we have the captain himself. They know how to sail. Paul is not a sailor by trade, he's a tent maker. Now, he's traveled a lot by ship by this time, so he knows what's going on, but he's not that's not his profession. Why is he feeling the need to speak up at this time? But it's not just that it will be injury and much loss. It's not just saying, guys, we're in danger. It's saying, you're going to lose not only the cargo and the ship, but also our own lives. Notice the comparison that he's making here. And the priorities that are better at play, right? What are the captains and the owner of the ship's primary priority? Now, they've been entrusted with the safety of all of these passengers. Luke says over 270 passengers. But what's their priority? The ship and the cargo, the things of this world. And because of the wisdom and foundation in Christ that Paul has, he is bold to speak up. This word advised that says Paul advised means admonished, right, exhorted. But notice what he's not doing as well. He's not complaining. He's not berating them, you fools. He's not condemning them, though he will say later on, you should have listened to me. So it is a, You're, you went the wrong direction, right? However, he is speaking up because of his foundation in Christ. He knows what is on their mind. He knows that the priority that is in their minds is the opposite of what their priority should be. The whole man, that they have been entrusted with the lives of all of those people that are aboard the ship. Now, he, because of this, he goes so far as to warn them that their priorities are off. Now, what what does this mean for you? What does this mean for us? Do we have the source and foundation of, of biblical wisdom within us? God is pleased to give wisdom to his people. By the very nature that you are a Christian, if you do claim Christ, you know the foundational truths of this world. You know the foundational truths that the people in this world ultimately, outside of Christ, seek only their own benefits, seek only to glorify themselves. And because of that, we can see Any number of the major cultural issues that are happening right now, which we won't go into, but you can see those things and see them from a biblically wise position of you know where these people's hearts are if they are not in Christ. And you know better how to think about these things than the so-called experts. Now, think about what Peter says as well about suffering right so we see that god is moving the gospel to the end of the earth why this huge detour why this huge detour into this massive shipwreck god is taking paul to rome in fact he's already promised paul that he's taking him to rome why this huge detour and peter says don't be surprised don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you this is biblical wisdom The biblical wise person knows that suffering in the life of a Christian is normal. Is normal. And I'm not talking about just persecution. I'm talking about just suffering in general. So much so that Peter says, not only don't be surprised, but also be ready to give a defense. Not be ready to give a defense, by the way, when you're shipwrecked. But be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you when they slander you. So he's even, you know, saying slander is suffering, right? And so don't be surprised when this happens and be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you. Now, let's take a look at this hope. What makes a difference? Um, what difference does this hope and this faith make? Because God glorifies himself through the faith of Paul. So looking at verse 13, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete. So they're thinking, all right, the winds are great, close to the shore, but soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster, and by the way, this can be gale hurricane force winds struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Isn't that a great picture of the the plans of men versus the will of God? The plans of men versus the will of God. This is what we wanted to do. And we tried to push against it, but we had to give way to it. There was nothing else for us to do. We had to do this. Now, continuing, running under the lee of a small island called Calda, he, we manage with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. And so they finally get a break from the wind. They pull the boat up. After hoisting it up, they use supports to undergird the ship. Fearing they would run aground, they lower the gear. And, so, and eventually, they begin to jettison. That means to throw overboard the cargo of the ship. Now, think about Paul's warning and the wisdom of Paul here being validated that, guys, you're not only going to lose the cargo and the ship, your your primary um, objectives, you're also going to endanger our lives. Now, in order to save the ship and the lives, they're having to throw out the cargo. So this is the beginning of the fulfillment of Paul's warning to these people, to the captain and to the sailors. Now, it says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved, was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of uh, the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Now, I want to ask the question. We we have a little bit of a juxtaposition here between verse 20 and 25. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Verses, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Now, are we to understand all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned as Paul losing hope in God? I hope that we would all say, of course not. Of course not. So, what does this mean? I think this is a great picture of how we need to view the Christian life, and it's specifically a huge issue in the Christian church in the West today. What's the issue? Is that when we get into a situation of physical or any other kind of suffering, we automatically default to blame. Blame of another person, which eventually is ultimately blame of God. God, why did you do this to me? Did I do something to deserve this? What have I done? Paul saying, or Luke recording, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Don't mistake that for eternal hope. That, this is physical, temporal salvation that we, he's talking about. This is just this ship. And so what is their perspective here? Paul knows that God has him in his hand. Paul has written many of the letters that he's written to the churches prior to now. You take a scan of any, any number of those letters, and you'll see Paul's trust in the sovereignty of God over all circumstances. And so he's not losing hope in God. He's, he just knows, okay, God, this is time. This is the way that you are choosing to glorify yourself in this moment. And I choose, I have faith that you are not that you are going to glorify yourself in this situation, whether I'm saved from this ship or not. Now, do we have that hope? Do we have that faith? What does that hope require? That hope requires a solid foundation. That hope requires the foundation that is eternal, that God in Christ has done everything that we need for hope and salvation. What is our hope? Our hope is in Christ, in the, fi- in the finished work of Christ. Our hope is in the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of our own bodies, as Paul says in, in Romans 8. That is our hope. This light momentary affliction is pre- preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. There's a difference between momentary and eternal. God may be, may be most glorified in your continued suffering or death. Think about, if you don't know kind of what happens with Paul uh, by church tradition, basically, it wasn't long after this, probably a few years, that Paul was eventually released. He got to Rome, he stood before Caesar, he was eventually released. Paul, you haven't done anything wrong. But then it was only a couple years later that a great persecution arose for Christians. And what happened to Paul then? Did God miraculously save Paul then by church tradition no he laid his head down on a stump and his head was severed from his neck so we know that temporal suffering is different than eternal we know that temporal salvation is different than eternal keep those things straight in your mind Think about, again, hope and the worldly hope slogans that we see all around. I work in a high school. It's filled with them, right? Believe in yourself, right? Or what's what's the, the current one? You do you, right? You do you. What is that saying? Put your hope in yourself. You can do it. What is your hope in? Government? Doctors? Experts? Education, mankind in general, your children, God forbid, your personal safety, your own willpower, what is your hope in? Do you have a solid foundation? And perhaps you would say, I object because Paul had an angel that came to visit him. If I had an angel, I would would believe. I'd say, yes, that, that works for me, right? we have the entirety of god's revealed word the entirety now paul was responsible for writing a lot of it so i'm sure you know he knew he knew it I'm not saying that he didn't but we have the entirety of his revealed word we don't need any more new information we know that our hope is in christ right now Why is he able to hope? Why is he able to retain this hope? Why is he able to show this wisdom in Christ? Because God glorifies himself through Paul's identity in Christ. That's who he is. Look with me at uh, verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. They had been so anxious. They weren't fasting for their own good. They were been so anxious that they couldn't even eat. Now, I don't want to make too much of a glaring comparison between their suffering and our suffering, but it is there. There is an anxiety. There is a a worry and a suffering that is so great that you can't even eat. Some of us have experienced that. This was for two weeks at least. Therefore, I urge you to take some food for it will give you strength for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Now, when he had said these things, he took bread bread, and look at this, giving thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged. How is it that Paul has the wisdom of Christ and the faith of Christ? I will ask again, because he is in Christ. That is who he is. In many ways, this is the culminating point. Identity is a massive issue. It's a massive issue all the time but we see it bubbling to the surface in very obvious ways in our culture right now. Who am I? Who are you? How would you answer that question? What is your primary identity? Son, father, teacher? How do I determine who I am? Do you may not see how many people flock to these different ideologies because they're looking for something that defines them, something that tells them who they are. I think of a person like Jordan Peterson and, you know, neither here nor there, but what's the, even, you know, even if he's not a Christian, whatever, what's the allure of somebody like that? Tell you who you are. Give you some kind of foundation. Now, that's a temporal foundation in a lot of ways. Right? The only eternal foundation is Christ, of course. But these people are flocking. Who are you? Who is Paul in this passage? And remember that he is a prisoner abo- aboard this ship. And he's been in a, at least two-week-long hurricane, basically. First, he's a trusted counselor. Chris read these verses earlier in, in uh, verse 31. So the, uh, the sailors were saying, hey, we're going to let some, anch- some more anchors down in the front of the ship, which, you know, nautically, it just doesn't make any sense, okay? And Paul says to the soldiers, hey, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers did what? They cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. And so if you've read the entire chapter, then you'll know that they didn't listen to his warning earlier. It says specifically that Julius chose to listen to the captain instead. But now, what are they doing? They're listening to him so much that they're even willing to cut away the only alternative transportation away from this ship. So what they're saying is, Paul says that we all need to stay on this ship, and I'm, and I'm trusting him so much that we're, gonna, we're all in this together. There's no other way out of here. And if anybody had any way to push their way onto an alternate form of transportation, it would have been the soldiers, right? He's a trusted counselor now. Wisdom is justified by her deeds, as Jesus says. Second, he's an encourager. Right? So, we need to be careful here. It says uh, in verse 36, you can see where I'm getting this, then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. So, Here's where we need to be careful. This, this word encourage is massively misunderstood, okay? Even within churches, okay? What does it mean to encourage, literally to give courage, okay? Based on what? Now, if somebody stands in the highway in front of an 18-wheeler coming and says, I have courage, that's not courage, right? That's just folly. That's foolishness, okay? You have no solid ground to stand upon, even if you're standing on solid ground, right? Okay? Okay? That's not real courage. Courage has to have a solid foundation. Notice the solid foundation throughout. Must have a solid foundation. So Christian versus carnal encouragement is very different. Now, people love encouragement. Why? Because they have no solid foundation. And they don't know their true identity. So they want to hear. We all love hearing how good we are and how much people like us how good of a job we're doing, okay? And that's not a bad thing. However, is it rooted in real encouragement? I joke sometimes that I have the spiritual gift of discouragement. Um, <laughs> but I don't think it's biased necessarily to say, I think some of us need some discouragement. Because what, you're do, what you need if you're going down the, the wide path that is easy to destruction, someone needs to discourage you from going down that path. Third, he is a thankful worshiper. It says in verse 35 when he had said these things, he took bread and he gave thanks to God in the presence of all. These are not believers. At least Luke doesn't give any guidance that they are believers of any kind, just him and Paul and Aristarchus. He is giving thanks to God in the presence of all. Now, can you say that? That you give thanks? in suffering. In some ways, this is a crucial test of our faith. Can we give thanks to God in our suffering? Why? How is it possible that we could give thanks to God? I've, I've recently been reading through uh, the Torah. Think about Israel and the wilderness. Think about, and you see how many times God puts to death Not other nations, that happens in Joshua and other places, but puts Israel to death. Thousands, tens of thousands, multiple times. And why? Most of the time, grumbling. Most of the time, it's grumbling against the Lord, questioning him. After God had redeemed them already, had already brought them through the Red Sea and shown his power, grumbling. Why did we come here to die? We should have just died in Egypt and we had all the bread and the food that we could could want and all the water. Grumbling against the Lord. Are you thankful? How is it possible that you could be thankful because you know what is in store for you in eternity if you were in Christ? Light momentary affliction, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Light momentary affliction. James says, what is your life? It is a mist that is here for a moment and vanishes. This is our eternal perspective. We must have an eternal perspective to say, God, I desire your glory above anything else. Even if that means my death, the orphaning of my, ch- of my children. The death of my own children. How is it possible that people can do these things? That we read in the, the hall of faith, in Hebrews 11, what these people did by faith. And now there's a whole bunch of those that are great things. And then there's a, a passage right at the end, in where it takes a real hard left turn. Some of them were sawn in two. Eaten by lions. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what I expected. By faith in Christ, we are like Christ. That is our identity. Our master was put to death. Why? For the glory of God in saving his people. And so we do likewise. Anyone who seeks to save his life will lose it, and anyone who loses his life for my sake will save it. What is your identity? Is your foundation secure? Allow me to return to the story of John Wesley for a moment. What happened after this storm? John and his brother returned to Britain after about two years of missionary service by about any measure and utter failure. And he still had a lack of peace. Of course, crossing the Atlantic, they encountered some more storms. He was reminded of the lack of peace that he had in his own heart as he returned to Britain. A few few months later, he kept in touch with Moravians. He was informed of a Moravian meeting that was happening. And what they were doing was that they were reading Luther's preface, not even the commentary to Romans, the preface to the commentary of Romans. And what what did they hear? Someone was up on a stage reading this preface to everyone. Luther was dealing or giving account of his story of wrestling with Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What was Luther's struggle there? How is it possible that God shows himself as righteous by the faith of his people? Once Luther understood that the righteous are justified by faith, alone in Christ's substitutionary atonement, he describes the warmth which enters his heart. And indeed, Wesley finally experienced the same faith which Luther described and found himself converted, An Anglican priest fresh off the mission field. Because he didn't, he still didn't understand. And now now keep notice of this. This is a man in good standing within the Christian church. Still didn't understand who he was in Christ and what Christ had done for him. He still didn't have faith, his foundation was lacking. What do we see in this story of Paul? We see a man who is faithful to Christ in suffering, displaying the wisdom of Christ, the faith in Christ, and identity in Christ as he stands upon the solid rock of our salvation. That is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Foundation required. What what does Jesus say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Right. Those who hear my word and obey them will be like a house that's built upon the rock. Those who don't will be like the house that's built upon the sand. In Israel, there's a massive shell, um, rock underneath the sand, but you have to dig down to it in order to put the the house on a firm foundation. But then what does Jesus, Jesus say, right? Storms. Storm comes against just the house on the sand? Both. The storm comes to both of the houses, both of the, the house that's built on the, on the solid foundation and the house that's built on the sand. But you know what happens. The house that's built on the rock stands, the house that's built on the sand falls, and he says to great ruin. Now think again about the wisdom of Christ in Paul. Think about if you had bought some land, you built a house, and you made sure you knew how to build it, you built a solid foundation. And then a young couple buys some land next to you, starts building their house, and you know, maybe you know—you have this knowledge, you know, based on the foundation that they're laying, that ain't gonna stand, it's not gonna work. What is your responsibility there? Is it condemning for you to go and say to them, hello, you have a problem. You need to change something about your foundation because this house that you're building will not stand. That is not condemning. That is loving. That is loving. And in fact, not doing it would be considered hateful. You would have to hate someone to say that house is going to fall down and I'm not going to say a thing about it. And whatever happens, happens. Christians are not Stoics, we are Christians who above all know and desire the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that when Paul says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our bodies. This is the way that God works. People consider this, whether you consider this true or not, people consider this a time of great suffering, or at least, at the very least, that suffering is coming in this nation. Now, neither here nor there, but you need to make sure that your foundation is solid. Can you give a defense of the hope that is within you when these things start happening? Why does God use suffering for his glory? Think about why. Notice that every aspect of Paul's life in Christ shines all the brighter in this time of darkness. Suffering exposes the foundation. It exposes the foundation. When one house stands and the other house falls, what do people around there see and say about that foundation? That was a strong foundation. And they glorify the builder. That builder knew what he was doing. They glorify the builder of that foundation that's what god wants god glorifies himself through the suffering of his saints because we suffer well the foundation is christ's work in perfectly fulfilling the law satisfying the wrath of god by his atonement and giving his people new life and new hearts through his resurrection and giving of the spirit We lay hold of this foundation by recognizing our sin, digging down to the rock, and trusting the rock for our salvation. The rock is solid, not the house. The house is only strong inasmuch as it is resting upon the rock. And you will only ever be as strong and steadfast as your trust in Christ and joy in his glory. So, I will ask the same question that Jesus asks his disciples after he calms the storm. Remember, they wake him up. Jesus, we're perishing. What does he say? Where is your faith? Where is your faith? You see the way foundations crumble all around us, people searching for something in which to put their hope and faith, something that will finally make everything better. Believe on Christ. Believe on Christ. If you are not a believer, believe on Christ. See what happens when the storm comes. And repent. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And so he is having patience right now. Believe on Christ. Those of you that are saints and yet are tempted to be discouraged and let the darkness overwhelm you, Remember in what is your faith. Remember the solid foundation under your feet. The person in the solid house can still be scared of the storm. That doesn't mean necessarily that they don't have a solid foundation, but you need to look at that because God glorifies himself in our joy, in our thanks. Remember Paul giving thanks in the midst of all of these people around him, in the midst of this storm, in the presence of all. Be someone that can give thanks because you know how solid your foundation is. Know that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, and always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Again, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. To the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. May we all take hold of this righteousness that depends on faith, that we may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, we may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray. Father God, we we thank you for any opportunity we have to glorify your holy name. That is why you created us, And that is why you have recreated us who are in Christ. You have given us a solid foundation. May we press into that solid foundation. May we as a church be a people to remind each other who that solid foundation is. The works on which that solid foundation were built. Not our own works. The works of Christ. Father, we are tempted in many, many ways. The world wants us to be like them. They want to see that there is no difference in having built our houses upon the rock versus building their houses on the sand. But we know there is a difference, and we pray that you would make us into people that suffer well for the glory of your holy name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.